Hi, Johnson. Welcome to this week's Leslie Rivick podcast. And, uh, yeah, I didn't realise, Leslie, I was actually a, a, a technical expert. I should be working in one of these Apple stores where they have the badge on that says Genius. Because I've had three phones in the last, well, about five years. And lo and behold, all my WhatsApp messages from all these phones <laughs> have actually just transferred straight across. No, you know, don't uh, bother. It's funny, no, isn't it? No, yeah. no bother at all. But two, two I mean... Theoretically, highly intelligent, at least very well educated men, one of whom Rishi Sunak claims to be a, a kind of a tech bro. I'm down with the guys in Silicon Valley and all that thing, I think. Oh no, I've had all these phones. I'm not really a WhatsApp person. And it just so happens. Yeah, all the WhatsApp messages that uh, in that time period in COVID that was uh, being covered by the inquiry, both he and Boris Johnson and the Johnson response was just uh, to his one. At least Sunak came up with something that actually resembled uh, spoken English, um, uh, they've they managed to disappear, these messages, lo and behold. So, yep, and that's uh, Sunak. But, but I guess they've, you know, yeah. they've sort of, they've, in their various ways, they've kind of brazened it out anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, they've, you know, we've been spared the more florid language to an extent because it's clearly getting fed in by, you know, all the chief medical officers. I mean, I suppose it comes down to things like with Sunak, more important because he is, after all, the Prime Minister, happily <laughs> Boris as a has been, yeah. um, is is the kind of idea that the him saying about his eat out to help out, which all the scientific advisors just said, if they'd known about it, they would have just said no. Um, and then him saying, well, you know, they didn't essentially they didn't kick off at the time. Then you've got. Mm. Yeah, but they didn't know, you know, and then you're left with how does this government operate anyway? And so many of the things that the relatives are saying who are, I mean, again, a tremendous uh, example of just a totally random cross section of people brought together by this horrible linking fate of having lost somebody in COVID. Um, having then sort of thought about it and, and, and talked to one another and pinpointed that if you, you know, the shambolic nature of governance in Britain, which passes for normal, which we're witnessing today in all sorts of different ways. We don't even know if there will be a, a vote will pass that just declares Rwanda to be safe, black to be white, the sky to be on the ground and grass to be a luxury extra. <laughs> you know, that the fact that intelligent people in the media and elsewhere are kind of gumming their around about something that is utterly ridiculous is kind of almost a totem for what has happened over the last, well, slow burn, but certainly over the last 10 years, where governance has just ended up being what Boris Johnson feels about things. And you know, some, I still find some of the most shocking things, the idea that Boris Johnson could actually say that, you know, well, he, 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 you know, he felt a bit conflicted, you know, was, was this really serious when, you know, I can't remember his, his analogy about, you know, the, the threat from COVID being no greater than a man's fist, whatever that meant. Mm. Um, and you think, I, I don't want to think that that's the way this decision was arrived at. What you felt, you know, you're not in this to just have one ministerial feeling and then that blankets policy across everyone else you're meant to at the sign of trouble like that you're meant to drop everything say i got a classics degree right yeah i know hee-haw about this i have a predilection for doing everything to excess 
So probably my perceptions of stuff are just a bit squiffy. So what's the first thing I do? I totally get these sage guys in because this is kind of panic stations. But what you hear coming out from all of them is exceptionalism from Britain that we couldn't learn from Italy because we weren't Italian. We're better than them. Um, the the idea that the the economy could only work if people were forced, however sick, yes. to go to work, which is almost in a, a nutshell where all our productivity problems come from, because it's just, you know, not quite obviously crazy. But the fact they'll still trot that kind of thing out shows how desperately they still cling to this kind of idea. And and then there, you know, we haven't totally got on to the crony contracts, although Michelle yes. Moon can clearly see it coming. Oh, so she's decided yeah. to do her little, you know, self-made by her own people documentary to kind of slightly cough to the fact that she kind of knew maybe something was going on. I mean, uh, Debbie Schrader was on Channel 4 News last night, and it was a lovely moment, actually, because in the midst of everyone with their, you know, obvious some some people with their access to grind, the public with their tremendously clear, clear sightedness, but still not, you know, scientists. I mean, Debbie Schrader had just basically said, you, you know, that the had just come back and said that she was just horrified by everything she'd heard and that it was just it, it just kind of. Uh, bolstered in her mind the idea that there was, you know, there just wasn't com any communication with anybody because that's not the way anybody in Westminster treats any decision, you know. So, yeah, it's it's it should be gobsmacking to everyone, and it should be one of these things that makes people think, my God, it's not just this, it's not just COVID, it's not just the past, it's not just health, it's not just Boris, it's not just Rishi, it's the whole damn setup of how that works in Westminster that allows this idea that you're so special, you don't need to consult anyone, you don't need to accept that you, you know, that there are areas you know nothing about. And at all costs, you keep the show on the road because basically anybody that's, you know, puckering up in the corner with problems of their health, let them go to the wall. You know, that's the thing that will always stay in my mind, that horrible kind of idea of just clear them out, you know, and and that is British Toryism. That's what they're about, is absolutely the survival of the fittest. And the fittest get that way, mostly by inherited wealth, privileges and, and, and kind of then you wonder why we've got problems as a society. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it was that it was, uh, again, Sunak far more articulate and far better presented than, than Boris Johnson, which, which isn't very difficult. And I, I kept thinking when I was listening to Johnson, you've had months to prepare for this. And the best answer you can come up with is, I don't remember. I don't recall. And that, one, of the, one of the things again, you, you're saying about this exceptionalism there, because, I mean, I, I know that Sunak said we saw what was going on in Italy. And the, the reports, I think it was Helen McNamara who said, and, and uh, excuse me if it wasn't, but I think it was Helen McNamara that said that, that there was a, uh, that again, we are world beating and laughing at what was going on in Italy in comparison to what Sunak said. I mean, we looked at Lombardy and knew we were, we were in trouble. But when Johnson actually said he didn't even read the SAGE reports, and I'm thinking the utter arrogance. And the the other bit I took out of it as well, which I didn't think it through was when I was listening to this bit about thinking about any kind of workplace where uh, Sunak said, well, uh, Witty and Valence and Van Tam, we could have said something at any point when this was all being talked about and it was up to them to come forward. I thought, does yeah. it not say something about the workplace that they were involved in that they did not say something 
because of the atmosphere that was created and that centralised, we know better than you guys and we're just going to blast ahead with us because what counts is the economy. And the refusal of Sunak to actually speak to Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State uh, for Health and Social Care, when it came to making the decision about eat out to help out. They said, that's purely an economic decision. I wouldn't speak to him about VAT. Well, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't realise the, the, the varying the rate of VAT could actually result in people dying. And the refusal to accept by Sunak in face of the facts that there was any health impact of the eat out to help out scheme, despite what was said in the COVID inquiry by, by the scientists. And the, the other thing that, that, that was the, I saw as well was that I think it was referred to as behavioural burnout that uh, Johnson talked about. There seemed to be a, a, a phrase that was used throughout the pandemic. They were worried about the fact that if you actually impose restrictions on people, their behaviour would diminish over time because what they referred to as behavioural burnout. And every reputable behavioural scientist has turned around and said, this is utter nonsense. It is not a scientific term. It is, does not exist. And it's all that miasma floating around. Mm. But then the, it wasn't, the, it was, was that the same phrase? I don't know if it encompassed the observation that Johnson made so early on and some of the science boys that if they basically started locking down too soon, the yeah. average person would sort of go, yeah, I'll do it for a while, but, you know, I don't probably, nah, I'll probably not do it after kind of, you know, I'll give you a couple of days of it. And yeah. you sort of think, where do you get that assessment yes. of the public from? It's you. Yeah. It's not us, it's you. I mean, I'm not trying to lionise the entire population. I'm sure there'll, there'll be people, you know, who, who wouldn't stick with it. But the, 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 the certainty that they all shared, and this crossed the political science divide, the certainty they had that they only had so much of the public's attention, even if with something that would be potentially killing people and was visibly on TVs, killing people in other similar countries, right? Um, you know, most people were beginning to get pretty panicky about it, actually, and beginning to voluntarily sort of, you know, restrict themselves. But they were so convinced that people wouldn't stick with it. And then you look at the party gate and all the rest of it. Yes. And you see what it is. It's it's Johnson's personal. This is what I mean. It's Johnson's personality writ large as a sort of pre I mean, there's more checks. People talk about us not having a presidential system. <laughs> there's more mm. checks probably in presidents, actually, although, you know, let's not go into that because <laughs> the oh, yeah. horrible prospects are looming there. But at least the, the American system was set up with the idea that there ought to be checks and balances because the prime minister was meant to be, you know, uh, not acting in this kind of let them eat cake sort of way. We've not really got the checks and balances that would stop this kind of nonsense happening and actually just as we speak in, in case this is too much of a jump over mm -hmm. you know the same thing is happening in case we forget to talk about cop 28 which yeah, we absolutely. did last week um it seems that the the uh, uk climate change minister has left the conference oh. he's gone home graham stewart i know you're saying who's that but you yeah. know that's going to be the way with all of them now because it's just you know sort of ch ch passing chairs uh, Graham Stewart has returned to London from COP28. Um, Greenpeace, well, I suppose they would be furious, but still are saying this is an outrageous dereliction of leadership at a critical point when we need bold commitments to unlock the gridlock on the text. And and the point, of course, everyone will have got from having watched the TV over the last couple of days is that from having had a real reasonably feisty text to be ending this COP28, 
um, suddenly it looks like all the oil states managed to muscle in, managed to get all mentions specific of oil and gas taken out and phasing out, phasing down, all gone. So mm-hmm. we've got something which pretty much everybody thinks is just absolutely not worth the paper that it's written on. And the fact that the UK is seen to be leaving the stage at this point rather suggests that like the you know, Saudis and the rest of the oil states, they've got what they wanted from it, which is a completely useless, dangerously useless. There was no point being here in level of uselessness out of a critical summit. So it's kind of the same thing again. I don't know. Maybe they think today's a good day to, you know, deliver bad news that nobody will notice and nobody leaving COP28 because there was so little contribution coming from the British anyway. But still, you know, this is just a total abdication of of all sorts of ideas of governance. It is that bad. And that's just two of our we haven't even got onto the main subject yeah. of the day yet. No, you know, because I mean, I was just—it's just the, the the thoughts are flying through my head when uh, when when I was listening to this because and thinking about COP twenty because Sunak jetted. Well, the, the, uh, sorry, and I just go with the fact that there were three planes taken to three take three individuals uh, representing the UK to there. So let's let's they part that one aside for for sheer stupidity, uh, uh, even in terms of PR. Uh, campaign, but, uh, but actually there but, is a link because uh, looking at some of the comments, Chris Skidmore, who's this kind of well, you know, tinyly decentish Tory MP, mm. who's kind of got a position at least on a good position on the green stuff, is basically saying that you know Graham Stewart has come home to vote in the Rwanda vote. Yeah, all and that's what all this all is in. about. Yeah. You know that because it's going to be this tight, and that's the reason. Caroline Lucas is saying if this is true that the ministers left the summit to vote in favour of an utterly immoral and actually illegal Rwanda deal. You know, she's just left speechless now. That's that's what we've come to. Yeah. That, I mean, that, a, it, that a policy mm-hmm. and this Rwanda thing would only ever deal with 1% of migrants. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely flannel and it's become utterly invested with so much symbolism for a kind of right-wing party that's running terrified of Nigel Farage. Yeah. OK, he came third, apparently, in the jungle thing. Now he's, you know, he's back and doing his usual. Oh, that was a oh, stitch well, up. I might just be, you know, I might be back in the game and all the rest of it. Yep. Reform um, Party is polling about 10 percent. All it needs is is for, you know, Farage to swing back in, absolutely pick up on the right wingery where clearly the Tory party is completely split anyway and pull off. Potentially, they might even get defections, you know, to that party within this current Mm-hmm. Parliament. And uh, I mean, I, I noticed from watching a lot of commentary that, you know, people had the, the received wisdom had begun to be that Sunak would sort of survive this vote. They would just, uh, you know, the yeah. left, and I'm not even going to call them the left wing of the Tory party. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. bucket, you know, yeah. anyway, the less bampottish side of the Tory party had decided that the one nation Tories had decided that, you know, they would go with this nonsense that uh, Sunak has come up with to just decide that Rwanda's okay. Uh, the 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 point for them is they won't allow any withdrawal from international treaties and, and the European Convention of Human Rights. Uh, the 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 ultra far right or the normal Tories now you'd have to say <laughs> yes. um, are are saying no can do. You know they might well vote against it. You only need I can't remember the numbers. Is it twenty three? Uh, whatever. 
to vote mm-hmm. against and a certain number of abstentions or a mixture of the above yeah. to end up with a defeat. And if you have a defeat, it's really hard to see how Sunak can carry on. And the received wisdom was, ah, but he'll probably just stumble along because they'll all realise this, that, you know, um, he's chosen not to make this a vote of confidence, which does nonetheless, that's what allows these normal Tories to make this stand. If it was a vote of confidence, then perhaps they would have had to think, well, actually, we'll be in an election. We will be Ofsky. The end beckons the second we decide you know, to go to the wall over this. But because it's not a vote of confidence, they can decide to just have their little strutting moment. And a lot of commentators last night were saying this is falling away from Rishi Sunak. So I don't know. You know, there's a whole lot of different perspectives mm-hmm. on whether he'll get through today. But then they'll try to put in amendments. And at that point, yeah. the, the you know, the sort of less right wing Tories will decide that's the game's a bogey. There's all sorts of stumbles from here for about the next three or four months. And obviously the House of Lords uh, will be a massive stumbling block. But that, that won't matter to them. You know, if they're able to say we're trying to do it, but look at these blooming lefty lawyers who managed to get their way into God knows how that happened uh, into the House of Lords. What are they like? Yes. You know, this is us. We're trying to do the decent thing by sort of stamping our feet on asylum seekers faces. And my God, all these people are against us. That would probably be all right. It's the commons that will be the problem for them. And if they really are beginning to if there's just beginning to be a peel away completely, um, you know, anything could happen in the next couple of days. And yeah. that's why this bam has been wheeled back, you know, at no notice, because that, I think, is a measure of how close this is and how bad this is for, for Rishi Sunak. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I listened to uh, Sir Keir Starmer this morning uh, being interviewed by Michelle Hussein, and it, it started off with the, the Rwanda bill. And it, it, it began by saying that the fact that the, it was sort of like that, that acceptance now. And Starmer made this point in the speech that you've got to reduce immigration. You know, that was it. You've got to reduce immigration. And what Starmer was putting forward was they saying that I've got my plan. I was this man who actually, uh, as the chief prosecutor for England and Wales, we, we tackled the terrorist gangs and surely it should be easier to tackle you know, people smuggling gangs and talks about reducing the reducing the, the waiting time for people to be processed. And there's only going to be 100 going through it there. And I, I, I'm surprised you didn't hear me <laughs> shouting hmm. at him. What about the underlying causes? And eventually at the end, he turned around and says, and if you look at what's going on in COP28 and about climate change being the the, the push factor to the, for, for, for migration, and you look at war and you look at poverty and I went, Hooray! At last, that is being talked about. So he he, he brought that in there, and the the other thing was when you you mentioned checks and balances, the the, the grouping. Uh, I think there are five now right wing wing wings in the the Conservative Party that coalesced around the, this thing they call the Star Chamber, and that, that rang a bell with me from a from what history I I, I do recall uh, was a was very popular under Henry VIII for its ability to enforce the law when other courts were unable to do so because of corruption and influence and to provide remedies when others were inadequate. So that's how these BAMs see themselves. They are the star chamber. These courts are corrupt. They're inadequate. And what's being done is we're going to we're going to be the guys that are coming in and, and sort it out because the star chamber was very, very popular with the people. But, you know, the thing I think is quite admirable, again, actually, Stephen Flynn has really done incredibly well on the the various chat shows he's been on and on Prime Minister's questions last week, 
where when as just as you say, when Labour and Tories are again on another bidding war for, you know, just how appalling migrants are. And I, 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 I put on Radio 5 Live for 30 seconds. I mean, I'm a, I really have a lot of time for Nikki Campbell because I've, mm-hmm. had, I've done that job. And it's a skillful thing to keep, you know, this thing bubbling along and to take all sorts of different opinion and not to belittle people when they are <laughs> sometimes talking. Mm. But you do have to correct things when it begins to just get ridiculous. And there was a little snapshot of the usual just, you know, from the tone of the voice. I thought, I think I know what's coming um, of this guy saying, well, who's going to pay for them? Who's going to pay for that now? Who's going to pay for the housing? Who's going to pay for the whatever? You'd have to have enough time to say what Stephen Flynn has managed to insert really cleverly and quickly into this discussion is that statistically migration benefits the economy, universities, schools, NHS and the care sector. Um, That actually migrants tend to use less in terms of benefits and with just the smallest amount of support end up becoming net beneficiaries to any economy. And his question that he asked last week where he was actually hurled down by Tories was, why do they expect people to come and care for us here in Britain when we treat them with such disdain? You know, as if and that's it comes back to that, you know, they're just liabilities there. And it's just like, in fact, if the Tories were being honest, the whole blooming population is just a big liability, you know. So anybody who's not one of us is just a, a greater one. This is resources. If we, if we skip, and you'll hate me doing this, onto the PISA charts, you know, many yeah. of the 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 most highly achieving um, people in any country tend to be migrants. Actually, they tend to be extremely well educated. They're very very motivated. They have to have been to have got where they are. Uh, so yes, it's good to hear it's somebody. And again, without you know, you know, this obviously the SNP's got lots of problems. But when it comes to the politics of it, at least there's, there's I just don't hear anybody else managing to say that what used to be an uncontroversial view. You know, this would not be an exceptional, wildly radical far left thing to say mm-hmm. that migrants actually with just the littlest of support, tend to be net contributors to an economy. So, you know, anyway, this is where we've got to. But are you ready for your pizza? Well, in a minute, because I always find it interesting that there are two types of migrants. People who leave this country, who emigrate, are actually thrusting, go ahead, innovative. They're Mm -hmm. seeking to better themselves in there, whereas the ones that come in here, and they're simultaneously taking our jobs and thieving our welfare services, you know. So it's, it's that one there. And the UK and Scotland in particular is a country made up of migrants, of immigrants. I mean, this would be a very one way conversation, Leslie. You'd be talking to thin air if, <laughs> if migration hadn't happened. And Scotland and Ireland, we've exchanged populations so frequently over the years, which again leads us back to the, the PISA reports, because the, the top 10 countries, and here we go, Singapore, Macau, Taiwan, Japan, uh, South Korea, Hong Kong, Estonia, Canada, and at number nine, Ireland, Switzerland at 10, UK at 14. So that's the, that's the, that's where we are, we are with those. But it was, uh, yeah, it's the, the OECD who, who do these. It's a program of people might aware. It's the program for international student assessments taken by 15 year olds, the skills in maths, reading and science. And there are sample surveys. And we're going to hold on to that for, 
for a bit later. And all no, these don't averages. hold on to it. This is oh, crucial. <laughs> the sample says the English pocketed it. What they did was that one in three schools didn't take part and one in school four pupils refused to take part. So what's happened there with the, the English results, which have been said, look how much better they've done than Scotland. And again, we'll look at the Scottish results. But the English pockled it because what they've done is they've oversampled higher achieving pupils. So you have to take the English results down by seven or eight points, which actually does reduce you know, their that how well they've done. So in maths, England, 485. So, uh, um, don't don't Scotland. do the numbers, people. Just right. So brains, yeah, they've been they've been they've been pockled, so the results the, come and down. And the thing is, not just and slightly, you're slightly popping when you pockle, just I should oh, say. Right. Um, but the the thing is that quite a number, because you're able to choose basically yourself which which uh, sets of ch- of of fifteen year olds are put forward for sampling. Um, it means that many countries do this. You know, that there's there's a lot of eyebrows raised about the results in quite a number of countries. So that's kind of, you know, yeah. one one issue. Um, and, and absolutely, though, George Caravan wrote an excellent piece again, um, pointing out and he really dig, dug deep into the statistics to find this uh, revelation about the, the English basically um, deciding that they, they basically got a massive over-representation of highly achieving pupils. Mm-hmm. So it does raise kind of question marks about PISA. It's a difficult one as well, because today, just this morning, in fact, just an hour ago, there's a, a, a new story running um, for the official achievement of curriculum for excellence levels oh. in numeracy and literacy says that Scottish students are performing better compared to last year across all levels. Wow. So I didn't can. I mean, we were talking about this yesterday yes. with the coach. Yeah. Hello, coach. We had our <laughs> Christmas lunch, forgot to bring the paper hats and so on. But it was very jolly. And just, you know, thinking, well, here's a question to listeners. If there's anybody who works in education and feels that they know what the heck's going on with this, it would be great to have just an email just to have your contribution. And, we, you know, we will we'll take your name out of it. But you feel if, you've, if you're out of education and the bulk of us are not, if, even if we've got bairns, <clears throat> or yeah. grandparents, you're only getting a sample of what their particular school's mm. like. But the curriculum for excellence, is that, you know, is that working? Has that, that's the worry at the bottom of it all, that the change in, in the curriculum, and then if we attempted to characterise what that is, I'm sure we would actually be wrong. But I had the idea that the cur- curriculum for excellence was beginning to drop the boundaries between subjects in the way that we used to have, you know, maths, double session, uh, English, history as separate subjects, and was trying to kind of get over um, thematic overriding things like water, for example, which obviously has got its H2O chemical properties, has got has molded the geography of our countries and the world, um, has got economic qualities when it comes to, um, you know, being privatised side of the border. You could write an essay on that. Um, all sorts of different things you could say about water history. Wars being fought now over over water increasingly. Um, that would that would be grand. You could take one subject, water, and you could basically be straddling a whole lot of different subjects. And we just wondered how the heck. First of all, you get the time for the teachers yeah. to basically collaborate to be able to, you know, put in their tuppence worth from the bit of the subject they know more about than the teachers driving the session. And just how much how easy that is for teachers who themselves were taught in very siloed ways, because, you know, I did a wee 
thing about for Radio Scotland about why kids didn't didn't uh, take Scottish history higher. Um, and a lot of it seemed to be because the teachers were essentially stuck teaching. William Wallace was the only Scottish stuff that they kind of had had their heads around as as children being taught themselves. But they were very, very fluent in American politics and the Nazi era yeah. because that's what they were taught. And so I don't know. I just don't know how, you know, this is quite a groovy way of trying to teach. Um, has it been possible to work? Because, you know, when we come back to piece of the, the country that used to do very well, Finland, one of the characteristics of, of that was and continues to be that it has the lowest number of hours for teachers spent with pupils in Europe. Yeah. Uh, the, the converse of that is they the teachers spent the most time with one another talking about ideas and how to present uh, lessons and preparing for them. And the kids get on with stuff themselves more. So, you know, there's so much to talk about in all of this. But there's that apparently contradictory study that's just come out today that says if you take a different sweep across the board, you seem to get that our, our numbers are better in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, across the OECD, 10 points down in reading, 15 points down in maths. So, I mean, COVID has had a massive impact on the learning and development of young people as well. I mean, right across the globe because of because of what happened. And I would, I mean, we all would have been just common sense. I'd use that word. Would have told us all there must have been an impact on not being in school and having to do distance learning and the variations in quality that there must have been, even with the best of intentions, between different schools and and different pupils and who had access to the internet and access to to modern technologies and had that support support system at home uh, with parents and grandparents and friends etc. to actually. To, to cope with it and just on a reflective basis I mean that part of that conversation was I know when we switched over and we were developing uh, into the units and modularised system that took, that took place and the, the move to internal assessments and continuous assessment that took place in further education what was what was very very difficult about it was that if you were allocated as an individual to develop certain units uh, uh, for, for example, in, in journalism that, that I did, you were working on your own. And the, the, the ability not only to, to work with someone in my own department and someone I could speak to and have that time period and the ability to cross-fertilise and it is not dosing, it is not not be, uh, people only perceive the fact that you're in front of a class is when you do your job. It's the hard graph that goes on behind the scenes to actually develop the materials, develop the methodology and be able to present and interact with students. And that, that collegiate thing that takes place. I found when I went to Jordan Hill to do my TQFE and the teaching and further education, some of the most valuable things I found were working out with my own silo of that, that media communications area and sitting in groups working with people who, who worked in hospitality and catering and the building trades and everything like that and science and engineering and thinking, my God, that's really clever. How do they do that? How do they do this? And, and I hope that they got the same from me. And that time's ability to spend away from actually just delivering and thinking about what you do in the classroom is absolutely essential. And we spend more time in classroom than than many other countries and not enough time and then the ability to develop those materials. And I just wonder if that's what's happened or happening or has there been that, that progress in, in curriculum for excellence? Because I know even with the best of intentions, when that 
development took place, there was very, very little of the ability to work with other people within my own college and out with McCollum College in, in, the, in, in the disciplines I worked in. But then here's another thing. The Finns still have that, you know, more time spent being collegiate, you know, basically picking each other's brains and encouraging one another and collaborating on stuff teacher wise. But they have collapsed down the PISA charts. Yes. <laughs> they, they were the poster children in 2000 when PISA started. And I noted one uh, piece, Riley observing a fin- in a Finnish uh, thing saying that that, that uh, there was this influx of people to go and visit Finland to sort of say what are you doing right you know everybody wanted to know and they were charging people 700 quid to show them around to school which right. actually I'm quite surprised about because I didn't think they were just quite that sort of um, let's say entrepreneurial mm. but right. so here's the thing the, the Finns have got, um, you know, they, they switched in, twi- um, in <clears throat> about five years ago to a phenomenon based way of, of learning. Right. Which seems to be that there's much more uh, group learning and collaboration. And they moved to digital hyper big time. So they, they brought, you know, tablets mm. and all the rest of it in. I mean, which actually, to be fair, pretty much everyone did. And this was partly a response to the fact that Estonia, plucky little Estonia, had whacked them in the piece of charts and that. Estonia, which had dumped its Russian, very didactic, sort of formulaic and formal education system um, upon independence, Estonia pivoted right round to sort of essentially pick up the basics of the Finnish system. And lo and behold, the Estonians were actually now doing better, mostly because they had gone big style into um, dig- digital and robotics, actually. I mean, I'm trying to remember one line from the film about Estonia that suggested that sort of something like 90% of kindergarten have got robotics in them. Kindergarten. Yeah. So uh, the Finns follow suit. Now, Estonia is still sitting up high in the PISA charts. Mm-hmm. Finland decided to follow suit and moved into this, you know, much more digital stuff. And the analysis, you know, there's, they seem to be in the same guddle of not quite knowing what's gone wrong. Um there, the analysis there is that introducing the digital stuff has really not worked. And that as soon as you bring the pads out and various other things, the kids are suddenly their concentration has gone. They're beginning to think, oh, what else could we get on the pads? Um, and you lose the class. So all I'm meaning is um, fuck ends. I'm not I'm not <laughs> yeah. saying that, you know, this stuff is utterly irrelevant, but. In the middle of it all, it just would be very interesting since the only thing I find when I've gone around the Nordic countries is that everybody's interested in what is called the Scottish experiment. So nobody has gone as far in this kind of field of of shifting away from from siloed subjects as the Scots with a curriculum for excellence. And it would just be very interesting if there are folk listening who know a bit about it then do e- email us. It's hello at leslieriddich.com and we'll absolutely, you know, keep your name and s- such like out of it. Yeah. And the, the, to say a note to the Ireland have, have sewed up the, uh, I've sewed up the, the, the piece of charts and I haven't done any great analysis. But the one thing that stood out there was that, and I was, I mean, me, the expert, I, I wasn't aware that since 1974, there's been an option after the, the junior certificate uh, which is a third year exam, and then you're meant to take two years to then take your leaving certificate, which then progresses you to tertiary education or right into employment. There's been the ability to take a year out, and that's that, that's been so successful now. And I'll talk about what the year out is 
that has been so successful. I think that 92% of schools and over 70% of third year students now take a three year program to get to the, 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 to leave school rather than a two year program. And what that, that transition year is, it's a deliberate step away from the books is what they call it. The critics, and I've used this word earlier, they call it the dossier, but it's actually proven to be extremely valuable because you, they, they learn more about themselves. They take part in incredible activities, you know, outdoor activities, volunteer work, drama, uh, enterprise, music, sport. And then the sport thing is not just participating. For example, the GAA leadership program is what they have to do is go out and organize coaching events for, for younger kids or underprivileged kids and things like that. And they, they, they can do great trips. Yeah, but what they've actually discovered, and I think you're going to, you can, you can see the way the wheels are working here, but hang on. A lot of it depends on how wealthy the parents are and uh, the elite schools do benefit better out of it. But it seems to be an interesting experiment. And what, what's happened there is you've had South Korea uh, in 2015 introduced a similar a similar program in the South Korea secondary education system. And Singapore's been able to have a look at it as well. And it is that that whole thing of they call it the move away from the books and give you that year out to develop yourself emotionally, socially, socially, and then have that ability to cope with that step up to an exam system, building up to that massive moment of the leaving cert, which is yeah. the, the big deal. And sort of at the risk of sounding like I'm sort of you can't even use the verb to trump anymore because of that man. But anyway, um, I mean, this has been the fundamental part of the Danish system since 1840. Oh, right. That was the that was the year the first folk yeah. high school uh, was was brought into being, and has really kind of pushed through since then. Um, so if anybody, uh, just by the by, since we're on Denmark, um, that's another thing that's been pretty big for me this week is mm. managing to get uh, fifteen sort of screenings of the Denmark film around the place. Um, you can find them all, and please, you know, come buy tickets, tell friends, come with a posse. Uh, because for a lot of cinemas, they don't take films like this normally. So it's taken quite a lot of persuading <laughs> to uh, encourage them to, to put this on. If you look at leslieriddick.com slash events, you'll find the list and the booking links and everything um, are there. And just to say to people, it's a shame that means basically that the film itself can't go online really until we've finished all the screenings, because that was another thing some of the cinemas were a bit particular about they thought you know if everybody'd seen it online nobody would come to the actual cinemas so uh, we won't be able to put it online until march so basically if you want to see this and it's got so much this is the prototype of this entire outlook of taking the foot off the pedal at the age of 15 not mm -hmm. not more you know more pressure is more results which seems to be the british system all the way along the line but basically more becomes less so quickly and the Danes are the ones who basically wrote the script and are quietly still writing it. So if you want to come see the film, and I really hope you do, please get on to leslieriddick.com forward slash events. And just while I'm on all the plugaroonies, there's also free postage on all the books, <laughs> which you can buy on leslieriddick.com forward slash books. There we are. Yeah, I've been I've been practicing my best. Rob Brydon, if you want to know more about all the books that Leslie Riddick has written, please get in touch <laughs> at. Is he, have you noticed that? that? That's Rob Brydon. I'm doing all the voiceovers for absolutely everything. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. 
Well, yeah. actually, you know, the thing that oh, I was going to say something that's probably going to get in trouble. Oh, but careful, there's, careful. There's, there's something that's being punted on Channel 4 as a kind of bit of a, you know, the, the snowman and the snowman and his dog and all mm-hmm. the variations that there are. It's just a, such a beautifully calming little 15 minute thing. But I guess a lot of people thought, gosh, you must be able to get something else along that theme. You know, a cheery sort of everybody just likes it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's something about some cat called Mog or whatever that keeps propping up on Channel 4. And it's got the most laddie da set of people. Right. I mean, the voices on the voiceover just immediately make me. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like my, you know, that's not my chimney pot. That's not my cat. <laughs> that's not my you know, I'm not feeling the love. I'm not feeling the con- connection. And it's actually, you know, despite my political views, quite rare that something really pushes me back quite that firmly. But maybe I'm on my own. Yeah. Well, I we, I have difficulty with the snowman, etc. Despite it, it, how beautiful it is since the Iron Brew parody adverts. Came oh, out, yes, I know. I, that's which true. Are, which are absolutely. <laughs> but I see. I, I kind of don't want to see that parody. Ah, it's right. a bit funny. But anyway, I, but then it was a brave move of Iron Brew to do that because it was always going to put people mm-hmm. one way or t'other, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, I mean, it's just the, 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 again, to, to, to circle, circle the wagons back, uh, just a minute to, to Rwanda, because it's a kicking the can down a moment, I think, for, for, for Sunak. And what he's hoping is that he's going to get all the folk on board. He'll, he'll, and you say, wait till, wait till the next stage and you can slip all your amendments in there. But it is that, that, that factor of the, the, the shambolic nature. And uh, and it's kind of like that back to the, you know, we're, we're circling back, we keep circling back. And this is the way I'm trying to get a link into that, the circling back, which has brought David Cameron back as uh, foreign secretary and uh, the foot stamping <laughs> that has been going on in terms of thou shalt not speak to yeah. anybody. Yeah. Actually, just you, you remind me, in case people are thinking, well, it's a bit odd that you're actually recording this now when there's all these votes and everything going to happen mm. later. I should say that. I finally am going into hospital today for yeah. this bloody kidney biopsy with my blood pressure now under control enough, hopefully, for the damn thing to happen. So we just have to do it now, which is why we decided not to wait for the votes. Um, but yes, this is be- just it's beyond ludicrous, really. I mean, we were talking yesterday and I was watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show on <laughs> TV and just, you know, that's as soon as you hear that song, let's do the time warp again. You can't get it on your head. You know, it's going to be there for weeks. And then I'm sort of watching David Cameron basically kind of slugging in on the sort of, hey, you guys, you little people, don't you think you can go and speak to folk on your own with us there? And it just felt very much like let's do the time warp again. Because does anyone remember he did that to us basically in the wake of the indie ref with English votes for English laws? It was a very similar sort of, you know, almost a disgust at the Scots for having dared to come so close to breaking up Britain. Um, And it was kind of, you know, because he always looks like such a very nice chap, but it was a really venal kind of little moment. And it's like this is unfinished business for him. You know, he left so shortly after that, after he screwed everything up with the Brexit vote. But it's like as soon as you bring, you know, the Scots look like they're flexing their muscle in any way at all. It kind of brings back that bad memory for him of unfinished business. How very dare we? Just how very dare we? So all the stuff that was being blad by Gordon Brown about as close as possible to federalism. Nah, 
None of that was ever going to happen. It was all going to be we just take the, the screwdriver, we get the screws, we just screw them all right down on the coffin lid. And these guys are inside and they just can't be heard anymore. And this seems to be what, you know, they, I think they've made absolute prize arses of themselves over this, actually. <laughs> I mean, the, it cheered me up no end to see Alistair Jack <laughs> blowing a gasket. Yes. To, I mean, I was trying to think about who it reminded me of. It reminded me of so many actually childish things. Well, he went off with so-and-so and then they yes. didn't stop for me and then nobody came <laughs> in here and she crossed the road and then nobody looked around and I wasn't there and nobody, you know. It's a partly like a blooming bairn that's just been left, you know. It, 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 there's bits of Monty Python start floating in as the Spanish Inquisition sketch, which regularly makes an appearance in my brain with a long <laughs> list of, you know, kind of crimes against humanity. And then you remember another one and start again with a long list. It's ri ridiculous. I can't think how these guys think they've done themselves any favours with this. You can't speak to so and so. You can't. You know, I don't know how many people will really look at all the sort of, oh, but, you know, the Scotland Act is, you know, foreign relations or blah, blah, blah. It's just mm -hmm. the sheer pettiness of it. Yeah. And it was the way Alistair Jack sat. I know he's being questioned by Pete Wishart, who has who readily lost for words. But Pete was going, what, 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 what? When Alistair Jack went, and aha, here's another three instances when uh, <laughs> yeah. Hamza Yusuf spoke to another three people. You know, we've got you. We've got you. And your, your, your excuse in Jack's mind of, you know, we did arrange the meeting. There was someone from the from the FCDO was meant to be with, with Hamza Yusuf in the meeting, but they couldn't make it. And, you know, and so it came to the point now where, and this is the bit that got me. Alistair Campbell. Alistair Campbell was actually defending the right of uh, the First Minister of Scotland when at a major international meeting about climate change should have the ability to speak to people. And, and Alistair is not exactly a, a fan of the SNP. He's not exactly a fan of Hamza Yusuf. I, and uh, he, he stood up for Hamza Yusuf's ability and he was quite taken aback by the fact of Alistair Jack turning around and saying, thou shalt not speak. Yeah. Well, I mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's just the politics of it, because, I mean, there's nothing that's going to put Scott's backs up more yeah. than, ha than being told that guys they've actually voted for are not allowed <laughs> yes. to go. And, you know, it's just we live in our world where devolution's real and the Scottish Parliament's real. And the the I mean, you know, it's real because when the Scottish government fails to reach aspects of its pretty yeah. ambitious climate change change uh, targets, the Scottish press take lumps out of the aforementioned Scottish government. So this is our world where we are, you know, we've got our own reality of what we're trying to do with stuff. And when there's a feeling of failure, then people get actually wellied in. So the idea that, you know, there's nothing distinctive to say and there's no reason to go and all the rest of it is just, um, well, it'd be interesting. I note that, noticed the Herald, which I must, I think these days you'd have to say is a unionist paper. Um, oh, yeah has got a poll. I voted in it and it's currently sitting at about 58% uh, think, yes, you know, Hamza should speak to who he wants to and 42%. So it's actually the reverse of where the actual last indie ref was. So just rock on, you guys. You know, you're just the petty, petty, petty. And what are you frightened of? Really, yeah. what are you frightened of? Because if we have no powers over crucial things, like we have no powers over energy, we have no powers over foreign policy, more is the pity. Because if we had... Uh, then the Scottish line on Gaza would be a, uh, the line of a country, not just 
uh, a kind of part of a UK, which again, shamefully voted against, well, abstained on the, Absolutely, the resolution yeah. that would have called for a ceasefire when the, U, the US voted against. And just while we're at that, um, I mean, there is a, there is a, a, I can't remember if it's a petition that's going around. It is actually, it's a petition that Positive Action in Housing has started, which is really asking for UN resolution 377A to be basically brought in. And this is a resolution known as Uniting for Peace, which basically allows the General Assembly yeah. to move uh, when it regards, uh, a, well, an absolute meltdown to be on the cards. Uh, and it was adopted in 1950. It says that if the UN Security Council, because of lack of unanimity, fails to exercise its primary responsibility to maintain international peace, then the General Assembly should consider the matter immediately with a view to making recommendations. So if not in session, the General Assembly may meet um, 24 hours call. Now, that call's been made. So um, I don't know quite when that's going to come up, but it will. And uh, it's well worth looking for that. But if you want to, I can't quite remember if there is actually a petition urging this to happen. It almost doesn't need that because several of the members of the UN have already mm -hmm. started that ball rolling. Meanwhile, it's just mm. yeah. the same terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's not there's almost nothing you can say except that your heart breaks and you every time you see it. And and I don't I don't know if the Israelis realize you know, there was so much since we last spoke um, evidence put forward about the rape of Israeli women during yeah. the October the 7th attack. And it just it is just it's a terrible thing because that is appalling. Um, and it, it certainly shines a light on Hamas. The thing is that every time, you know, the, the thing is framed as the Israeli government versus Hamas, the vast majority of people, I think, are just howling at the wind, the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. They're neither. This is not just the Israelis versus Hamas, as if there was just a couple of teacups in between them. This is a people that live in the midst of all of this. And they are not Hamas fighters. They are not Israelis. And they get airbrushed out of every single conversation. So, you know, it's the trouble is that your mind leaps to that every time you hear a hurt expressed from the Jewish side, from the Israeli side. Um, you know, and as soon as that framing comes in, that any sort of question that's asked of a soldier, do you feel at all guilty or do you feel empathy for the 18,000 people killed on the other side that you've helped kill. Always the same stock answer is these are, you know, Hamas are using these people as shields and nobody has the courage to push further because, as we've said before, um, there is just the Holocaust and the whole persecution of that country uh, sitting behind the next question, which cannot be asked. It doesn't mean that it isn't being asked in the minds of everyone watching and listening at that moment. We're all aware of the next question is, but the Palestinians have done, you know, what what are the 18,000? What are the children doing to hurt yeah. you? What yeah. are they doing? I mean, that's the bit that, that this morning, uh, Stammer was incredibly articulate in the interview with Michelle Hussein, had his always lines prepared when asked about Gaza. He fell apart. He was mumbling. He was fumbling about, you know, what we, what we should be doing in terms of a, 
calling for a ceasefire. And again, it's that, and, and Michelle Hussein said to him, when you uh, abstained on the, the ceasefire vote, 10,000 Palestinians had died. They now believe it to be 18,000. And again, he there was no, no 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 answer to it. And as I said before, it's seeing the the legion of uh, Labour MPs now standing up and calling for a ceasefire, who, when given the opportunity to actually vote for a ceasefire, failed to do so, but did retain their the shadow ministerial the shadow ministerial post. And it was a rather bizarre intervention. Again, it's this conflation that, that continually takes place between the existence of the state of Israel and uh, the, the current Israeli government and Judaism. Because President Joe Biden uh, at the, the Hanukkah uh, celebration uh, at the White House, I think it was last night, said that uh, if the, the state of Israel ceases to exist, or, uh, the, 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 is, uh, that would be a problem for Jews everywhere. And I thought to myself, hang on, if Israel's under threat, he's saying that Jews everywhere are under threat, which is again coming up with that whole thing which is anti-Semitic, which is Israel, Zionism equals Judaism and Jews. And and it doesn't when you have, for example, like Torah Judaism and people like Michael Rosen, Alexei Sale, that, that's a legion numbers of people you see on marches. And when you saw the latest march uh, in London where the Metropolitan Police actually stepped in because there was the the, the Jewish uh, march uh, calling for an immediate ceasefire, they stepped in to stop the marching because they operated under the assumption they were marching against the pro-Palestinian, you know, calling for a ceasefire march. And yeah. Go, yeah, but then, okay. but the the other thing I just thought when you were saying that is, does nobody? Because my my mind just leaps immediately in that framing of you know the, the hurt to Israel is essentially a hurt to the entire Jewish community across the world. If that's true, how is the obliteration of Gaza not a hurt to the entire Muslim population right. of the world? Yeah, it's the yeah. lack of parity in these in these ex- formulations of of motivation for killing people that just I don't know if I'm the only one, but I just keep hearing the gap all the time. Yeah. Anyway, can can we must this is, we must draw yeah. this to a close because yes, uh, yes. we both have to have I've got oh, to phone the hospital, you've got to get a phone call about a roof. About a, a leaky, a leaky roof. Not my own, I hasten to add. Um, and just a, a wee word for all our subscribers there. And will I, will I go into my Rob Brown? No, I won't go into my Rob Brown voice. As I say, uh, there's the, check your emails, folks, because there's the, uh, the latest podcast special on the, the breakup of Britain featuring, I mean, it's a, it's a terrific, I was going to say cast, terrific set of speakers. Uh, Professor Will Storer, uh, Caroline Lucas, uh, Clive Lewis, the Labour MP, very, very interesting. Leanne Wood and your good sell, Leslie. So that's available to all our subscribers. Uh, and if you fancy subscribing, always remember, it's leslieruddick.com forward slash podcast and you can go and subscribe there. But for those of you who do subscribe, please look at your emails. It's an absolute belter. And it won't on, be coming to everybody yes, sort of yeah, later, yeah. later. But, you know, you guys are, you got first yeah. dibs. Yeah, because we... <laughs> There's a way to say because you're our favourites. And I thought, no, 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 don't say that. Or on that, or on that, that's not a cringy note. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you next week, Jobs. <laughs>